0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida, IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The catfishes, members of the order Siluriformes, include over 3,000 species that vary widely in size, appearance, biology, and ecology. So what do catfish eat? Fish keepers are often confused and assume that a one-size-fits-all approach works. My guest today, Rebecca Bentley, has a lot to say on that subject. Rebecca is an ichthyologist with a broad understanding of catfishes but specializing in the feeding morphology of the lower Korean or plico family of fishes. Join us as we learn more about the science of catfish nutrition from an expert on the subject. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: How many of you have pets? Bob's pet accessories Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets and with your help we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over 7 million dollars so while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers famous memory foam cushioning you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side find Bob's at a Skechers store Skechers select pet co-locations or wherever stylish footwear is sold
2: let's talk pets
0: on petliferadio.com welcome back to aquarium mania on pet life radio my guest today is Rebecca Bentley a scientist and catfish expert with a particular interest in catfish morphology as it relates to feeding and diet. Hey Rebecca, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, it's good to be here, thank you.
0: So as I usually do and you probably know, I like to kind of ask some personal questions first related yes. to you and the hobby. <laughs> How old were you when you had your first aquarium and do you remember what was in it?
2: So I had my first aquarium when I was 10 years old and I'm um, there's this brand called Sera and they used to do leaflets. I think it's a German brand. Uh, they aren't so common anymore, but they had this like different types of setups. And I saw I really wanted what's known as the Dolph cockatoo cichlid or pa- Epistogramma cacatoides. So a pair of those was my first fish that I kept.
0: Very nice. How did they do? Did they survive?
2: Yes, they did survive for quite a while. My dad had kept fish beforehand, but I don't really count. That as me keeping fish. So I had background, I guess, but they never bred. They were kept in hard water. And I always wanted to try and breed them, but I wasn't quite confident or sure about how to do it because back then, well, I was only 10, so I didn't have access to all the resources. It was mostly books, which are a little bit vague. Well, the ones I had access to.
0: That's true. Did you have any other tanks after that?
2: So I've had, I went through different phases. I went through Siamese fighting fishes. So I had uh, loads of different betters, and then fancy goldfish. So obviously different size setups between them for the betters, had much smaller setups for the fancy goldfish. I then also end up keeping many outside. And then eventually I just found... Catfishes. So I've got two tanks at the moment. So I've always had aquariums, just different size ones and different setups.
0: So what would you say were the maybe the major influences and things that got you interested in the aquarium and aquatic biology?
2: So... I think mainly it's just I'm really interested in the fishes themselves, so their body shape, their morphology, their whole biology, how they interact with each other. And they're just so diverse. It's not like I think when I look at other groups of animals, they don't have that diversity of body shapes, even though fishes is not strictly one group of animals. It's a bit more complex than that. They are just so different. They're so alien and there's so little we understand about them. The influences, though, is a little bit, uh, it's always just been mostly the fish. I do really like uh, looking at different resources. So I like looking at older books and mostly journals, I find, are my biggest influence now, such as the Journal of Fish Biology. That's when I'm constantly looking through for more influence and something that sort of sparks my interest a bit more. Than looking at traditional uh, websites and books now.
0: And uh, how did you, I guess, or when and how did you become involved in the aquarium hobby? Obviously, you're kind of, you know, very into the hobby, but also a scientist. So how did sort of that kind of happen?
2: So I've had the aquarium since I was 10 and always been interested in that side of it. And then one day I saw a job advertisement at an aquarium store that was just starting up. And I think I was 18 at the time and I applied for, I got the job. And that was when I started actually in the industry itself. And I did six years in the industry in different stores. So that independent store, it closed down after two years and it did open back up. And then um, that also did pond maintenance. So I had more experience with ponds and also marines. They had no issues with beginners or whatever doing marines. So I also ended up working with marines and freshwater and decide that my focus my interest is in freshwater and then I worked for sort of semi-independent and then uh, what the largest aquarium chain store in the UK and I worked there for two years and I just wanted to focus on the science in general and I think science is my passion so I've worked in a few other jobs other than that and I did teach animal management for all of three months I guess.
0: Oh, that's good. So yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of experience in the industry, which is really, really (laughs) helpful, definitely. So so, what made you make uh, the leap and decide to get your your PhD, you know, or, uh, you know, that quite a big, quite a major leap from uh, working in the industry?
2: So I don't know where it starts, but I always said I wanted to be an ichthyologist and it's defining what it is like. To me, even if you have a degree, it doesn't make you Uh, biologist so I was like what level is it that I am going to be an ichthyologist and I want to do it for a career so I really do need to do a PhD and it's a long load of different applications and stuff like that on the side of my jobs in the industry I also was I did my master's and my undergraduate degree so it was sort of on the side anyway and I'm just I'm really interested in the science more than the actual practical side, I guess, although I yeah, do, yeah I like to apply the science to the practical side as well.
0: That's right. That's right. Your master's as well. So yeah, no, and I think it's actually personally, I think it's really important that there are a lot of folks like you who are, who understand the industry and are, you know, like the assignment of it, but are bringing the science to it as well. So that's, that's, that's great. I'm excited. And that's why you're here. So, <laughs> so, um, Let's talk a little bit about catfishes. And, you know, I guess you could tell us, first of all, I guess, why catfish versus the many, many, many other groups of fish?
2: So catfishes, well, the start for me looking at catfishes is just, I was deciding between reproductive biology, which to me, I can't imagine it'd be a bit more, not as diverse or as interesting to actually study. Then it was taxonomy and evolution. And what's one of the widest diversities that you can actually see or radiations is a the probably more better scientific term. And catfishes is one of the largest. I think it's around like 5,000 species. It doesn't beat uh, cyprinids, cypriniforms, which is uh, carp, minnow, that lot. And cichlids, obviously, they're one of the biggest radiations uh, when it comes to that niche group in the Rift Valley. But catfishes are just so unusual, and most people see that, Sort of like the North American catfishes, they see them, um, ictaludes, and that's what they see as a catfish. But there's so much more diversity. There's lower cards, which don't even, they have that dermal plating, which catfishes don't have proper scales. So it's something entirely different. Then you've got ones um, which are more loach-like, trichomycids. There's quite a lot you don't even see in the hobby. There's ones that look like the, was it, hillstream loaches in Asia, and I think there's some in Africa. There's just so many, and they're not really studied as well as they could be, especially ones in certain regions, and their evolution. A lot of focuses in my group, the loyal cars, the fleckos, is in there. Sort of how their taxonomy, how to build that family tree, the phylogeny. Whereas there's not as much on their morphology, and there's so much being missed on that. And in other groups, I know the African Synodontis and chyloglanis or Chiloglanis, they're often neglected when it comes to studies. And even I think in the aquarium hobby, people with Synodontis, people think of them as all hard water. They all grow large, they all sort of... But there's so, so many from the Congo region, there's different sizes, different shapes. Many are social, there's loads of soft water ones. So there's so much diversity just in catfishes themselves and you've got the pelagic, the ones that swim at like almost... Nothing like tuna, but that sort of level of water where they're just swimming in massive shoals, Pangasidae, so Pangasius or Bassa, I think you might buy it as for food. Yeah, so...
0: So as you mentioned, you know, in, in the uh, the catfish is the order of the Siluriformes. You, yeah. There's so many major groups. You actually described, and was I, I? wasn't sure if this was for your masters. You described a new species of corridor's catfish.
2: So this is corridor's bethnae And this was actually described as part of, it wasn't anything to do with my masters. It was uh, because in the UK, and I think in the US, there's quite a good uh, sort of network of different catfish keepers, catfish owners and enthusiasts, and also integrating with the scientists. So there's many scientists that also keep fishes and interact, talk um, on Facebook, on Planet Catfish, probably also on Twitter. But that's where... Quite a lot of us ended up collaborating and I collaborated with two other people. So Lewis Tencat is a scientist in Brazil, specialising mostly in those sort of catfishes. And Steve Grant is an amateur scientist. He doesn't get paid for any of it, I don't think. And he's described quite a few different species. And he's got a particular interest in Corydoras, Hence, he got chose the name of Corydoras Bethanae, which is CW006 on the number system, and also one of the skunk Corries, but probably not a traditional Corrie in most senses as they're quite nasty, I guess. You keep them in harems because the males really are not particularly keen on each other.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that group and maybe some of the differentiation that you you did? I did kind of briefly go through your paper, but maybe explain a little bit about what you mean when you're talking about these differences.
2: So most of it was done looking at, I guess, looking at also splitting up the lineages. So Corydoras, is right now is one genus. But there's work to split it up into several genera. So looking at the head shape, I think, is a particular obvious one where the different lineages have quite a different like head shape. And that's how you can differentiate some of the different of those skunk corries. You've got Corydors granti, which is quite short headed. And then you've got Corydors narcissus, which is maybe a bit more elongate. Corydors narcissus is much larger and then also Corridor's Bethany, which I think is a bit more wedge-shaped. It's uh, Lineage 8, I think, which uh, is different from Narcissus, which is 1, which is the true Corridorus. So that includes like Corridor's Fullerai as well, which is named after Ian Fuller. Anyone that knows Corridor's, he's put a particular name in that side of the hobby. But it's mostly looking at also the markings. The markings are a little bit different in how that skunk pattern is shown.
0: I also learned a new word when I was reading it. The uh, if I say it correctly, aposemitism. Can you can you explain what that is? And you mentioned uh, a few kind of potential things that were um, maybe reasons for some of these markings.
2: So I, it's not particularly been like well studied, but a lot of it is to do with the markings anyway. I don't really study colouration particularly well, but it's mostly whether it relates to predation and their habitat. Uh, Steve Grant's done quite a few talks on the topic, um, but looking at how the water actually interacts with their patterning and also polarisation, so that sort of thing. But I don't really... look. I look more into skeletal details than colouration because most of my specimens... Their coloration are is not great because of how they're preserved. Formalin destroys it, but ethanol over time will totally bleach the fish.
0: Yeah, and that was actually a good point because when I, I think w- when I was reading it, you mentioned sort of how they look from you know obviously through yeah. the water column and everything. Because yeah, I'm you know obviously I'm usually looking at quarries through the side of a tank and not really
2: <laughs> yes from
0: the from the top. So yeah, definitely. Well, I think we're um going to take a little bit of a break before we get into the the meat of the discussion which is uh, catfish morphology and nutrition so let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with my guest rebecca bentley theologist and catfish nutrition expert after these messages from our sponsors
1: take a bite out of your competition advertise your business with an ad in pet life radio podcasts and radio shows
0: and continuing our conversation with my guest, Rebecca Bentley, ichthyologist and catfish nutrition scientist. So we talked a little bit about catfishes in general and some of the work you've done. Let's kind of jump in now and discuss nutrition and catfish. I know there's definitely a lot of confusion and there's catfish diets out there in the hobby, and I think a lot of folks are maybe not quite clear, you know, all the different types of catfishes out there. Can you start maybe by talking a little bit about Trophic levels, you know, because I, I some people may not know that term and what that means, and then discuss maybe different levels and associated diets.
2: So sort of when it comes to trophic diets, particularly in catfishes, uh, trophic diets being what they feed on and sort of how they interact with that whole uh, food web. Um, with catfishes, there's one at sort of every level. You've got some of the large ambush predators, particularly when it comes to... The gulper cat, which is quite a famous one that people enjoy keeping. Uh, There's also other sorts of uh, predatory catfish. Most of them tend to be more ambushing in some manner. I don't really see too many that hunt, although you have got the parasitic catfishes, Uh, trichomycids. There's plenty of them. They might be specialising in fins or scales. And then there's the famous blood sucking ones, um, Vandelia cirrhosa, which is the famous one. And then really, other than the carnivores, obviously a lot of them are that sort of level of feeding maybe on mostly probably invertebrates at larger levels or sizes, maybe fish, but it really depends on the actual group. There's plenty that are actually feeding on diets that we kind of see as omnivory or herbivory. But then when we look at the aquatic sense or the aquatic context, what is actually herbivorous and carnivorous or omnivorous actually blurs a lot. Because unlike in sort of the terrestrial world, when you're looking at how mammals feed, they're, if they're feeding on a herbivorous diet, it's a little bit easier to sort of get that sort of really clear cut line of that is plant matter. Whereas with fish, particularly a lot of them, they're going to be feeding not just on algaes, which are very different, I think, compositionally wise to plants, even though some algaes place very close to plants, some are totally different in that group. But they're also going to be feeding likely on different invertebrates. For example, rhizoa, which is these little fan feeding organisms. Sponges, which I think recently have been debated whether they are actually, well, how basic they are in animals or whether they are animals at all. But they're just these filter feeding, well, sponges, as the name suggests. And then maybe other invertebrates that might be a sort of arthropods and stuff like that. But really what they're feeding on is going to be, it's going to vary a lot in this composition. And it does depend on like their jaw shape, their teeth. And it's very difficult to actually match that in captivity and we might not even know because a lot of studies that at the moment we use the term detritivore and list detritus, but detritus could be anything, it could be maybe made up of more bacteria, it could be made up more algaes, and it's really difficult to actually draw that comparison to the terrestrial scent, especially when we don't have the papers. But this is where like law carrots and even synodontists come in. There's many synodontists that feed on that rasping motion on a surface. And I say it's kind of a lot of them is like uh, when you're looking at grass and you're seeing sheep, cows, horses, they're all feeding on different parts of that grass or maybe different like aspects or um, different actual grasses. And it's so much. There's so much more precision to this that really does need studying, but also needs understanding in the hobby, especially get for longer lifespans and health. Some of these fishes don't breed in captivity or have never been bred in captivity. Some have very low success. Take the gold nugget baron and zanthes or any baron sisters. These are the big. Well, you buy them very small, and they're probably very specialised in their diets in the wild. And they tend not to have a good growth rate. There's been, I think, four cases of them breeding, given how many get imported and wild caught. And they've also been very small specimens compared to those in the wild, which are reaching 30, 35 centimetres standard length, well, total length, standard length is a bit more debatable. So that's excluding the tail. But it's so much more complex than a lot of, I think we, how we see fishes, even in other fishes, cichlids, for example, there's so much more diversity to their diets. And it's very difficult to say herbivore, carnivore, detritivore, omnivore, almost impossible because it's not quite the same.
0: You mentioned a couple plicos or lorcoreids. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about one or two that might are a little more common in the hobby for, as in like examples of maybe differences in diet, even though they're all lorcoreids, lower, lorcoreids?
2: So... This has been it's been studied, but I think there's a lot more debate that needs asking on it. So there are ones that are more carnivorous. There's not as many, I think, as many people think, or there isn't the literature available to actually say they are carnivores. So, for example, and distrus oriatus, which is the Goldie Pleco or Sunshine Pleco, and also the Cactus Plecos, which are uh, Pseudocanthicus. They are carnivores in different sort of niches. So these, well, mostly they feed on invertebrates, they don't feed on fish. It's probably, it's not really that likely that they're gonna be able to catch a fish, let alone, actually, it's a little bit more difficult than, I guess, for other fishes. So they're mostly feeding on invertebrates. So insect larvae is going to be probably the most common. But also those sponges, those brisora. If you look at the mouth shapes, they're quite different. So Pseudocanthicus mostly feeding on sort of invertebrates, I guess, in general. But Pseudocanthicus has a mouth shape that's very narrow. So it's kind of just to get into like mollusks, snails. So probably snails or bivalves. So I guess... Muscles. I'm not very really sure exactly it just uh, the literature is very vague on this aspect but sort of using their teeth to wedge these things out then there's ones which are a bit more I guess there's no real sort of midline where they're feeding or, a lot on that and then feeding also a lot on plants because their mouth shapes are so different but there are ones that will feed on different aspects of more algaviri or so feeding mostly on algae and related organisms, I say, for it. So you've got ones that feed on the microbes, the fungi, the bacteria, particularly within woods. So that's like Panax, which is your the royal pleco, and also the clown pleco, Panaculus. And they're feeding at different levels within that wood, on the bacteria, not on the wood. There's been plenty of analysis to prove they cannot digest wood. So they're just looking for those things in the woods, then you there's loads of different aspects of surface feeding on the different organisms, on whether it's whether like in a crevice or on a flat surface. And I think that's where the largest diversity is. And with the teeth, then they might be feeding at different levels on that. And they're going to be feeding mostly on different bacteria, algae, protozoa, and the levels will depend on the actual, well, on their teeth, on their jaws and stuff like that so it's, it is quite varied and there's a lot that hasn't been studied on it
0: well i appreciate that and definitely um i'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because i know there's a lot of people that think you know plecos eat wood and uh <laughs> and obviously yeah, as you mentioned that's not necessarily correct so definitely important so obviously you're interested in morphology so um you mentioned a few things with kind of the teeth um Are there any other sort of morphologic or GI type features that you think might be important for uh, our listeners to understand with regard to diet?
2: So there's the actual sort of fleshy side of that suction cup that seems to be hinting at different diets. You've got ones that are very mobile in those organism. Well, those uh, lower calves, those plecos are really having to get into a crevice trying to extract something and then there's ones which are a lot more flat probably going along the surface um, to feed and there's also sort of different levels between that the jaws are big one you can't really see the jaws given they are bones Um, you can kind of get an idea of them the main difference is that the shorter jaws um that have less teeth tend to be feeding more on invertebrates. The wider jaws with many teeth tend to be feeding more on algaes and bacteria. And there's a whole spectrum within this, especially when you're looking at the different shapes of them. But that's the main sort of one we know so far.
0: Yeah, that's, and I think that's kind of a good, good kind of lesson. Obviously, we always encourage... Hobbyists to try to learn about their fish before they buy them and you know look at things like even morphology and you know, shape of the mouth and that sort of thing to help give them kind of clues, you know, even though there are some diets that are considered sort of general. Speaking of which, there are a lot of general tropical fish food diets out there. And also, as you know, we've discussed kind of some f- diets that are considered catfish diets. So can you talk a little bit about things that hobbyists should look at in terms of the formulations, you know, a little bit of education on that. And then also what your thoughts are as well on commercial catfish diets. You know, we might have to break that up a little bit.
2: Okay, so when it comes to diet, I always look first at ingredients. So a lot of people are like, well, they just look at the percentage of protein and I think that's very vague. So that percentage of protein is going to be a lot clearer if you actually look at the sources of the protein, which are the ingredients. And ideally, quite a a few ingredients is useful. Um, The main one I would try and avoid is high fish meal, if possible, because given these fishes don't eat fishes, they're not going to be able to extract as much nutrients from it. And there's plenty of studies looking into if the organism isn't naturally eating fish is gonna find it very difficult to extract particularly calcium phosphorus from fish mail. And then kind of catering those ingredients to what the fish might eat in the wild. There is quite a few like hobby resources, I'm just reading different websites to see what they might eat in the wild. And then trying to get a spectrum of different ingredients that cater for that. So if it eats mostly algae or bacteria, Or even sponges, a lot of those ingredients aren't available for captive diets. So I'd just say that a diversity of algae within the diet is going to be best. And plants, vegetables don't really cater for algae because the main thing there is that they're entirely different. A lot of amino acids, so they're they're the building blocks that make up proteins are quite exclusive to different groups of organisms and algaes are one. They're very high in protein compared to a lot of plants. So they're very different compositionally to plants. So don't go for a diet that contains a lot of plants if you're trying to cater for something that eats algaes. If something does eat a lot of plants, there's not many laurel cards that do. A lot of their habitats aren't sort of vast in plants compared to, I guess, other fishes that might grab a lot of terrestrial vegetation. And then if it's a carnivore, maybe thinking what type of carnivory, if they are eating fish, then great. Different types of fish meals, a diversity if it would be great. And then if it's eating mostly invertebrates, trying to get that diversity of different invertebrate ingredients in. If possible, if they are eating mostly mollusks and snails, then catering for that. I think it's a lot easier for the carnivores because you've got so many different frozen foods to use and mix in. Ideally, don't mix it in if you're using a gel diet, uh, just because it could go off quicker if you mix it directly in the gel. But feeding them as well. Uh, the main thing with frozen is avoid stuff like or don't feed frequently things like uh, frozen mussel. Even white bait can be a bit risky and prawns because of um, which is a enzyme or a toxin that causes well, a malnutrition and can cause quite uh, bad issues with some neurological problems. And with the herbals, I think it's a lot more difficult, algivores or any that, mostly that algae, because there isn't really as much to sort of put in. And I think a lot of diets, hopefully brands catch on that. they There's so much they can offer, especially the wide range of algaes. It's like there's plenty of ingredients around, and adding them or having the option of more brands offering that would be brilliant. Other things sort of to look at diets, I generally would avoid stuff like that contains cellulose as just an ingredient, because it's mainly looking, usually we'll say contains wood, look at the ingredient, it contains cellulose. That and lignin is the one that they definitely cannot digest. So it's just, especially as a main ingredient, that's just going to be a filler. But I I think there's a lot more to diets that meat style, especially when it comes to the word fillers, particularly like all the sort of different ingredients that you see, and they're quite overwhelming, especially like brewer's yeast, stuff like that, or even uh, binding agents are really important. You don't want the food breaking down very quickly in the tank. But then there's the other aspect of you don't want it expanding in the fish's stomach, but yeah.
0: So definitely, yeah. So you went through a lot of uh, kind of, a lot of the challenges for folks who are keeping catfish. So I guess, and you, you sort of talked about this in your uh, answer previously, but let's say someone is a little bit overwhelmed and they've they've just got a, a catfish. So maybe kind of but step-by-step, step, what should they do in terms of how they figure out what to, f- to feed it?
2: So I'll definitely take a quick look at websites like Scott Cat and Planet Catfish because they give you sort of a quick vague guide. If you're totally not sure, or some fishes there's no idea what is available or what they actually feed on, there's nothing I think, listed on hobby websites, then I kind of always take a look at like ResearchGate or just type in the name of the fish, ideally get the scientific name, and then just put journal diet, because then you're going to get a quick... It's probably not the easiest way to do it, and it is obviously going through quite dense paperwork. But that's going to produce the most reliable way of finding a diet is looking at what's already, what has been found in the wild. So their gut analysis, what people have actually identified from the fish in the wild. Otherwise, there's loads of different websites that offer resources and you can always ask different people what they've had success with. So quite a few websites have like breeding reports on what they've had success with feeding that fish. And looking at the body shape, you can see where they feed based on where their mouth is shaped. So if it's faced sort of superiorly, so that's at up top, that's fish is going to be feeding on the surface terminally, then it's going to be feeding most likely straight in front of it, but that it can be a little bit deceptive. And then if it's got a ventrally facing mouth, so facing down, then it's going to be feeding mostly on the bottom. And you can look almost... Other aspects of that. So, say Corydoras, they've got that really well to different extents. That shovel nose that goes into a substrate. So that's they're going to be feeding on organisms within there. Most likely, obviously, like invertebrates because they don't have that ability to sort of extract the so any sort of biofilms or algae. Whereas lower cars of that oral disc of the teeth, are quite obvious. Most mostly I can be feeding on the surface, but it is quite a challenge and there's not always much available.
0: That's great advice. So I know you've obviously, you know, spoken to hobbyists and you've gotten, you know, you've got some articles out there. Are there any questions that you get maybe asked commonly that, you know, maybe we haven't covered?
2: So, well, questions that I get asked a lot, uh, because there are so many catfishes, the biggest thing is actually identifying what catfish you have. And a lot of these groups get confused, especially, sometimes it doesn't make as much difference in care, but sometimes it makes a lot, especially in adult size. So it's quite often people will confuse, say, Corridorus with Synodontis, or even with the Laurecharisoplex. So generally, I think it's very important to use websites that, well, always take a look at places that planet catfish that have that massive pictorial guides, um, same with a lot of groups. It's taking a look at the different ones. And also, if you are identifying something, don't assume the most rare, assume the most common, because that's most likely to be the answer. And asking online, there's some reliable groups, there's some not. It's a whole hit and miss thing. But places like catfishes of the World, there's scientists that will help reply to anyone's uh, questions on that and also the catfish study group, which is the UK catfish society. So yeah, that's probably the most common thing.
0: That's great. I didn't even think about that. You're right. A lot of uh, folks don't maybe know how to ID or or, are confused by what they're looking at. So, well, we are unfortunately out of time. I wanted to, once again, thank you, Rebecca, a lot for your time and you know hopefully have you on again at some point as we get a little further into Catfishes. Also want to thank our producer, Mark Winner, for making this show possible. Rebecca, did you have any final words of wisdom or anything you want to kind of impart on our listeners before we uh, close out?
2: I think always question everything you've been told on the hobby and look at it from a scientific standpoint and do as much research as possible and don't underestimate groups like groups of fishes and just do as much scientific research question your sources and make question whether they're getting their information right and where they're getting their information from I think is the most important thing
0: Yeah, excellent advice, and and not just with this topic, but with almost everything. (laughs) So definitely, definitely appreciate that. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Please be sure to check out Rebecca's web links, which will be found on her Aquarium Mania guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please be sure to visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and feed your catfishes properly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.